Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. someone you know has a child with autism in their family? Answers and support can be hard to come by. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. We will offer practical information for parents of children of all ages, as well as explore treatment topics and recent research related to autism. Now, here is this week's host. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I am the Vice President of Business Development at Autism Spectrum Therapies, as well as a board-certified behavior analyst. Um, over the last few weeks, you guys are, are used to me kind of jumping right into the, the topic of the show, and, and we have a great topic today that I'm really excited about because it's something we haven't talked about. But before we go there, I, I, I kind of wanted to actually just talk a little bit about this amazing event I went to last night. Um, to any of our regular listeners, you probably – Remember a few months back, we did a show with uh, Judy Mark and Renate Moko, and they were talking about this really cool trip they took to Israel. And I actually had the, the honor of being able to go to the community meeting that they put on last night to share with the greater Los Angeles community um, their findings and the things they saw as well as the ideas they have for the future. And what was particularly special about the evening wasn't the information. Um, I, I'm still as amazed by everything. And, you know, I had mentioned that show, how much I loved the program they were actually doing with the uh, the military and, and that story of that young man. But what was really amazing and really cool about everything was the way the community responded. There was this this rallying cry and, and everyone in the room at the end of the night said, I can't wait to do this. And I just thought that was so amazing to see 200 fellow community members all rallying around the idea of let's get involved, let's get motivated. And Judy was just fabulous as always. And she said something last night that has really stuck with me, um, even this morning, just around the nature of our community. And that unfortunately, we have a lot of motivated people in our in our community, but we also have a lot of fractured uh, parts of our community. The, the autism community isn't as united as it could be and as it should be. And and that was a big part of this rallying cry of all, all these different people, people from the early intervention background to the adult background, the ABA to the OT to the PT to people who are educating future professionals to parents. Everyone seemed to really rally around ideas and concepts. And 
that was really cool. And I, and it was nice to see some of those fractures that Judy talking about, uh, being mended. And I think, you know, it, to me, it was really fitting because today being election day, it's a great opportunity for all of us to really get involved and, and to voice our opinion. Um, I know that it was a part of our actually talk last night was how important it is to go out there, really look at our candidates, talk um, and give our vote based on some of these things that are important to us, particularly our kids and our community, um, but not just to stop there and to continue to make it known that what our kids need, what kind of supports they need, whether it be funding, services, programs, et cetera. Um, so I just wanted to share that, just my impressions of last night, really encourage everyone to get out there, um, have their voice be heard, vote, looking at not just the national but their local elections, because all of all of the things we talk about on this show, this idea of community, um, it, it all relates together, and, and our government definitely plays a role in, in helping us to create the programs in the community we want. So that was just my thought from last night. Um, to our show today, I am really excited about our show today because uh, the big goal that I've had that we've had on the show is to bring resources to parents and professionals. And today's topic is a topic that I don't believe we've ever talked about on the show, but it's something that always comes up. I, I can't tell you how many families I speak to or work with where the conversation relates or ties somehow to feeding or food selectivity. And it's actually something going back through our past shows we've never really talked about. So today I'm really excited because I get to have someone who knows so much about feeding, is really a feeding expert. But on top of that, is someone that I just have the utmost of respect and admiration for because she's one of those influential people who I really credit for training me and teaching me and helping me become the professional that I am today. So with that introduction, uh, my guest today is Michelle Wallace. Uh, Michelle graduated from the University of Florida with her doctorate in experimental analysis of behavior. She is currently an associate professor at California State University, Los Angeles and a program coordinator. She is an active research laboratory and is the program director of the Center for Severe Behavior Problems. She was a professor at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the clinical director of the Nevada Center for Severe Behavior Problems, as well as the Nevada Pediatric Feeding Disorder Clinic. Uh, Dr. Wallace is on the board of editors for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and has served on the California Association for Behavior Analysis Board in several capacities. Her current research interests are related to the refinement of assessment and the treatment methodologies with respect to problem behaviors, um, parent, teacher, and staff training, the acquisition of verbal behavior, medical versus behavioral approaches to mental health issues, and of course, pediatric feeding disorders. So with that introduction, Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rob, for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be speaking with you today. So I I feel like I've kn I've known you for a few years now, and you know the, the the first question that I wanted to ask is one I've actually never asked you. You have you have such an extensive background, and and I'm always in awe of all the different things you've accomplished and, and you've researched. But how did you actually get into feeding? What what drew you to that um, specialty? Well, what drew me to it was. Um, in treating kids with other behavioral excesses or deficits, 
it always amazed me that the parents, after you were working with them for a couple of months and you were making such great progress, the parents would say, oh, hey, by the way, my kid only eats chicken nuggets or my kid only eats yogurt. Is there anything you can help me with that? With that? Um, and it was right at the time when I, after I graduated from University of Florida that you really start to see a boom in publications with respect to feeding. And so the combination of, you know, parents asking me for help and, and then reading all of this, you know, research coming out um, in Java and other behavioral journals really sparked my interest. And I started working with these kids and fell in love with the work. That's awesome. And, I, you know, because this is a brand new topic on the show, you know, I wanted to make sure we covered some of the basics that maybe some of the parents and some of our listeners aren't aware of. But, you know, do we have a sense yet of how many kids with autism have food selectivity? It's really hard to give it a number. And one of the reasons for that is feeding disorders, the way they get diagnosed is uh, really cumbersome. And so the estimates that are out there range between 33 to 80% of children with developmental disabilities, but it's, it's really not clear exactly how many. The other thing um, that I wanted to mention was there was a study that was done where they asked uh, pediatricians to ask their parents, um, both parents of typical developing children as well as children with special needs and autism, and 74% of the parents indicated that they were concerned with what their child ate or didn't eat. So it wow. seems to be a really high number when you're talking about uh, parental concern, um, and uh, it's just the diagnosis of it is, is something that isn't quite caught up. And I think that's also the reason why, you know, how I got interested is, you know, people mm-hmm. were like, oh, yeah, and by the way, my kid doesn't eat. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder, is that partially, you know, like you said, the diagnosis is low, but maybe the concern is high. And I'm thinking about how many parents and and even a parent I just met recently who was kind of like, it was like an afterthought. It was, we went through all of these things. And then I asked like, hey, so how, what's mealtime like? And they were like, oh yeah, he eats three things. Uh And we're like, oh, would you like to work on that? And he's like, yes. Like immediately the mom's eyes lit up and said, that's a huge area for us. But it didn't feel like that was the first thing on her mind. So that's that's interesting. I never really thought about that. And and not only a lot of times is it not the first thing on their mind, they tend to, um, you know, talk to their pediatrician, and their pediatrician, it, it's not a red flag or it's not a big concern to the pediatrician until the child is off the growth chart, and that's when it becomes mm. a concern. So a lot of these kids that have food selectivity – they they eat, but they eat only one specific thing, and so they tend not to be the ones that are failure to thrive. Ah, they, that makes so much sense because, like, they're putting on the amount of weight they need to put on, so the pediatrician isn't necessarily as concerned. But to you and me, we're saying we can only do McDonald's chicken nuggets and french fries. Burger King won't do or these other ones won't do. Maybe we've got something we need to really look at. Right. Got it. Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, so – you know, what are some of the common issues that, that you've experienced? Or, or are there common feeding issues that we typically see? Well, uh, 
overall with feeding disorders, one of the biggest problems is mealtime inappropriate behavior. So you get, mm-hmm. you know, kids who throw their food, who hit their parents, who cry, who hit themselves, things like that. So those are probably like the big issues with all feeding disorders. With uh, food selectivity specifically, you get mm-hmm. kids who, for whatever reason, select food and they can select it by the type of food that it is the color of the food. So I've had kids who only eat orange food. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, they get selective by texture. Um, some kids get selective by brand. Um, you know, you were talking about only McDonald's being the, the key and Burger King doesn't, you know, uh, work. I had my first feeding kid I ever had. He only ate chicken nuggets and they had to be from McDonald's. And the mom would even try to, you know, um, disguise store-bought chicken nuggets and put them in a McDonald's box, and he wouldn't eat them. <laughs> I, I have seen that a few times yeah. myself. I, I, I the, the color one is the one I always find the most interesting. Um, for me, the color I never forget is pink. Uh, a young girl I worked with only ate pink food, and and that one always seemed. Uh, that that's the kind of experience I think that stuck with me the the most. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I want to talk more about um, some of these these feeding issues that you're seeing, some of the food selectivities that you've um, you've experienced. Um, but we have a commercial right now, so we'll, when we come back from this break, we'll talk more with Dr. Michelle Wallace about feeding and food selectivity. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we are committed to supporting families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, creating futures for individuals with autism. Visit autismtherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm Rob Haupt, your host this week, and I am joined by Dr. Michelle Wallace, and we are talking about a really interesting topic today about feeding and food selectivity. Um, and right before the break, we were talking about some of the, the common issues that are coming up or some of the common behaviors that are seen with um, from Michelle's experiences and, and that we see with kids on the spectrum. Um, and what I was wondering is, you know, Michelle, if we have parents listening today who think, you know, is this my kid? Like, what, what are the early warning signs or what are some of the symptoms that they should be looking for or or be concerned about? 
um, when looking at their own children's food selectivity or feeding? I would say some of the early signs or warning signs that include things like not the unwillingness to try new foods. Um, so it usually starts, you know, the parent offers something new and they're, they're not willing to try it. That would be a really good first uh, warning sign. Also, the starting to display problem behavior related to the meal. So starting to, you know, engage in crying behavior um, when foods are presented or, you know, throwing the food away. Not just, you know, young kids will throw food off, you know, the high chair, but I'm talking, you know, pushing mm -hmm. the food away from them, throwing it away, away from them, um, batting at their parents' hand if all the parents trying to feed them, things like that. And then it kind of slowly progresses to you can start seeing them becoming more and more selective with respect to whatever their selectivity is. So they will only start eating the pink food, like your, you know, your ch your child that you had. Right. Um, and so that starts you kind of start seeing that pattern over and over again. So, oh yeah, you know, there's no problem when I give them the pink food, but as soon as mm -hmm. I start changing the color of the food, then I start getting a problem. So. I know from my experiences, food selectivity is something that is not just something for kids on the spectrum. You know, there's kids with with a lot of different developmental levels who who experience this. And, you know, I always I always think to myself, like I was a really picky eater as a kid. Uh -huh. um, and I, you know, my my wife, my friends, my family always make fun of me because up until 21, I don't think I ate anything green or ate any vegetables. And my wife has definitely done a, a rehabilitation on me. So I'm eating salads and all this good stuff now. Um, but like how big of a repertoire should a, a child have? I, you know, like me as a kid, I had a, a large repertoire, but I was very picky in certain things. Uh -huh. So is there like a general rule of thumb of, hey, this many foods is good, like 10 foods or 20 foods? Or are there any guidelines to that? You know, it's not um, the number of foods that's really important. And actually, when you start um, targeting treatment for these kids, what you're really looking at is getting them to to a point where they're eating a balanced meal, balanced mm. meal across breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so what's really important is to get that nutritional expertise on board. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can go uh, online as well and look at the feeding, uh, you know, the food pyramid or the... Um, the food, the American food plate, and so mm -hmm. really, what you want to make sure is that your your child is eating a balanced meal, mm. and then as long as they're eating a balanced meal, then you can you know put other things on their plate to just try and um, expose them to other things. Got it. Okay, so I definitely failed as a little kid having the balanced meal. So that's <laughs> that's good. It's good for me to tell my mom that when I see her. Uh, over the holidays, mm -hmm. um, you, you brought up interventions and that, and that's kind of where I wanted to go next is, you know, a family out there, even a professional out there and they're, they're trying to figure out what is an appropriate intervention. Where, what are the common interventions that are typically used, um, for kids with food selectivity? The common interventions from a behavior analytic point of view are, are really the same categories, if you will, of interventions that you would use with any behavioral issue. So okay. you have your uh, antecedent manipulations or what you could do before the actual meal, um, and a number of them include um, 
you know, giving the child some uh, preferred food that they like, a couple of bites, and then presenting the non-preferred food. They mm-hmm. include things like having the child only take one bite of the non-preferred food and then gradually increasing the number of bites that they have to take of the non-preferred food. Um, with respect to color or textures, you see um, fading. So if the child only eats white, you start with white and then you gradually fade in other colors mm-hmm. um, or uh, increase the texture of the food. Mm-hmm. So those are really like antecedent manipulations. Um, the other category, and this is really the most, I think, the most important category, and this is what the research is showing, is that you really need an extinction procedure. Um, mm. And so extinction in this case usually um, consists of either non-removal of the spoon, so the, the food stays at the child's mouth until the child consumes that bite, or right. the use of a three-step prompting procedure where you you know verbally tell the child to eat the bite, and if they don't eat the bite, you model it, and then if they still don't eat the bite, you physically guide them to place the bite of food in their mouth. Uh, And the research has really shown that without this extinction component, it's really hard to get to make progress. Yeah. I kind of want to... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and then the last sort of category of uh, interventions include differential reinforcement. So making sure you're reinforcing successful... Um, eating of particular bites or using the pre-MAC principle, you know, um, my my parents used the pre-MAC with me when I was a kid, you know, before I could uh, eat my dessert, I had to eat my spinach, that kind of thing. And there's also an interesting you can use of like a time-in and time-out. So while the kid is eating the food, as long as they're eating, they're getting lots of attention, they may get, you know, favorite activities. But as soon as they stop eating, the attention stops or the video stops until they start eating again. Got it. Yeah, I was thinking that the video, like you've got your favorite video on Mm -hmm. as long as you eat spinach. And then when spinach is over, the video is over. Got it. So to to, I have a couple of questions about a a few of the different things you brought up. you know, I, I think to God, and my wife still does it with me. She like sneaks food into the things I like to make mm-hmm. me try new vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like my parents used to do the same thing at times. Like, you know, something would be covered in ketchup and it would be like masking the flavors or masking certain things. So for our families out there, you talked about antecedent interventions um, that would fall into that category, correct? Yes. Awesome. Because I, I know that's to me, that's like a really easy one that I think families embrace pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, putting chocolate in milk and then, you know, gradually fading the chocolate out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you talked about the, the extinction part. And, you know, I I, I remember uh, years ago you, to- you had talked to me about that and you talked to our class about that and just the, the, the challenges that come with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, and that's something I was hoping you could, you could, you know, maybe advise. I remember you always telling us that this is a hard intervention. You need to be kind of all in the whole team, the parent, the professionals, you guys need to be all in on this. Right. Um, you know, do you have advice for a parent or, or considerations you think they should have um, in this process of saying, hey, this is the intervention for me? Because like you said, non-removal of spoon could lead to 
some tantruming. It could lead to it could lead to a rough dinner time. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, one thing that's interesting because extinction um, can a lot of things are involved with it, and you can get a lot of uh, extinction-induced responding. One of the things that I always do with any parent that I work with. Um, and their child is I actually have a video that I have the parent watch of an actual extinction session. And I want them to watch it because I want them to see this is how bad it can get. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to go down this road, then we shouldn't even attempt implementing extinction. Because if we start to to implement it and you cave or you give in or it's too rough for you, we've just made matters worse. So in order to implement extinction, they really have to understand that it could get worse before it gets better. And um, so I always show this video of this little girl, and um, she starts, you know, tantruming. She uh, actually starts gagging um, and acting as if she's going to vomit. Uh, and I have the parents watch it, and then I do let them see the after video where, you know, she's just eating everything on her plate and Mm -hmm. there's no problem behavior and there's, you know, everything looks like a typical dinner. But I want them to see how bad it can get um, Mm -hmm. to see if they're willing to get it. The other thing is is, um, I think it's really important when you are working on feeding issues that you understand that there's also some interventions that have to be in place for the parents and the caregivers. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to watch your child gagging. And the, you know, expert who's or the professional who's working with that family really needs to understand that and to be sympathetic to that. That's a really great point. That's a really great point. Yeah, it's, I, I love that you're showing the videos because. I feel like I can never do it justice to talk about what this could look like, what the good and the bad. Right. So I don't feel like I even do the good justice. Like this is where we're going to be. Mm-hmm. But to see it is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, that words just don't do it justice in either example. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. You know, um, to see, to, to sit there and See this little girl who engages in so many problem behaviors, and in the video, it's um, she has to eat a little uh, piece of a cherry tomato, which seems kind of benign, mm-hmm. and she's just going to town and gagging and hitting and screaming. And then at the end of the video, the second segment of the video after treatment, her plate is filled with cherry tomatoes and broccoli, wow. and she's just eating it, happy, smiling. You know, mom's not even doing intervention anymore. The inter- all the intervention that's left is you eat your meal and you get a dessert. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you do you find that you know by going through this process, which I, I, I really like, do you find that parents are do, do you find that more, um, it's like a fifty fifty split? Some are turned off and say, "Hey, I know I can't do this and don't want to do this." Mm-hmm. Do you find that most of them actually still watch it and are like, "No, I get it and I'm in." Um, do you see any trends in that? I definitely think it depends on the um, level of food selectivity that you're dealing uh-huh. with or the level of feeding uh, issue. So I've definitely had parents who have watched the video and have said, mm, this isn't for me. Okay. And then we'll try other interventions without the use of extinction. And if it doesn't work, 
they tend to eventually get to a point where they're like, you know, this, I, my family can't go on this way. So something mm-hmm. has to change. And mm-hmm. that's usually when they're, they're able to go through the extinction process. But mm-hmm. then there are other parents who, you know, uh, especially if this isn't the first behavioral issue that they've had to deal with, mm-hmm. they understand that, yeah, you know, it's going to be rough for a little bit, but the payoff is there. And, um, you know, they, they can see that, that payoff where their child is going to a birthday party, for example, and, you know, eating whatever is served versus them having to bring something special or worrying yeah. that their kid's going to have a full-blown tantrum just because, the, you know, the host offers pizza. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I, I love that, I don't know, you're that you have alternatives. I mean, clearly you offer other alternatives, but it's almost like you allow the parent to get to it at their own pace. Like you've got to be ready for this. You got to be committed to this and I'm not going to rush you. If you're not ready, then I'm going to respect that Mm -hmm. and kind of have you guide me as the professional. I I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I think that's actually perfect timing for us because we we're up against another commercial break. Um, And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk more with Dr. Michelle Wallace about feeding and food selectivity. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we are committed to supporting families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, creating futures for individuals with autism. Visit AutismTherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everybody. We're back. Uh, I'm Rob Haupt. I'm your host this week on Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Wallace, and we've been having an amazing conversation on feeding and food selectivity. Um, Michelle, you said something um, prior to the break when you were talking about these are the behavior analytic interventions. And that really got me to thinking that I think it's important for us to point out that, you know, there are other people who oftentimes collaborate. I know in my experiences, there's I've, I've collaborated with other professionals in this as well. And, and there are other interventions besides just the behavior analytic. Um, but who are some of the who are some of the important um, collaborators that, that you've worked with or who are really important for families to keep in mind to include in any type of feeding interventions? I think it's really important um, that there's a team 
And some of the key players that I would include in the team would include some medical specialists um, beyond just the pediatrician. So definitely the pediatrician, but you really want to make sure that the child for more severe feeding issues has had a complete workup from, from a gastroenterologist and so forth. Another key person is someone who, whose professional focus or expertise is on oral motor development. Um, generally, that usually in, includes either an uh, occupational therapist or a physical therapist. Um, definitely important to have a nutritionist on board. Um, you know, just like we talked about a little while ago, as a behavior analyst, I'm not an expert in nutrition, and so it's really important to have someone who does have that expertise, who does know what the nutritional needs are of a, of a child of a particular age. And then definitely uh, a board-certified behavior analyst. I think a lot of times um, individuals who have some knowledge about behavior analysis try to implement interventions with these uh, kids with food selectivity, and it actually can be really detrimental, so I highly suggest that a board-certified behavior analyst is is on the team as well. And then, of course, you have to have the parents on the team or whoever the caregiver is, because if they're not not on the team, then um, you're not going to get as as much success. Um, and, And the real test of the success of the program is what is the child doing in their in their home during their meals when there are no experts around and so it's really important to have the parents on the team as well yeah i'm really glad you mentioned um selfishly as a behavior analyst i'm really glad you mentioned the bcba piece because you know this is not this is not easy stuff we're talking about like i i think of almost this at times as like more advanced aba procedures and techniques and um just because it is more to me at least it's always felt more complicated than mm-hmm. um some of the same principles administered or utilized in, in other settings like it's it's feeding it's dinner time it's it's just it's always felt a little bit more complicated like i know i always turn to you know i have uh, some friends and and other kind of experts who i oftentimes turn to for help because i i even feel like after so many years i still need a lot of guidance and help in this area mm-hmm. it's not something i just want to take on by myself well and there's you know there's issues that can arise by taking it on and not knowing exactly what you're doing. You know, if you have a child who only eats one, you know, one type of food and you implement an intervention and then make that child not eat that food anymore, now the child eats nothing. Right. (laughs) And that's that's when I call you, Dr. Wallace, and I say, Michelle, please help me design this intervention. Yeah. Um, and it, and I think what's really, you know, one thing I've come across and, and I, I'm sure I've kind of learned this from you. I've learned this from experience, too, is parents actually appreciate when I'm honest and say, I know this much. I can handle A, B and C. But once we move into D, E, F, we need to bring in some other resources and other supports. Right. And you don't want me doing this. And I feel like if, if me as a professional can be upfront and honest with my own limitations with them. It's they respect me more and we get so much more accomplished faster. Um, and in some ways, they're almost more motivated because I was that honest with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if everyone remember, thinks about that sometimes, you know, where we're sometimes so quick to want to help that 
Right. Well, and I, you know, I always, I, you know, the old saying, two heads are better than one. I mean, I yeah. live by that, you know, in, even in the work that I do, if I could bounce ideas off with another behavior analyst, then those ideas are going to be more sound than they would be just my, you know, having my own influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's very true. That's very true. Um, we we talked about I mean you talked about a lot of different professionals here and and you talked about the importance of the parent on the team, but if a parent is at the early stages is says you know, Rob Michelle everything you guys are talking about totally resonates and that's my kid, who who should they call first like where would you recommend they start to to put this in place? Just because feeding can be so difficult, it's really a good idea to make sure that they get a medical workup done first because mm-hmm. because of especially if you're going to use extinction you want to make sure that there's you know there's a less likelihood of aspiration or things of that nature so you want to make sure that they have all the motor skills that they need to chew and swallow um, and some medical um, testing as well just to make sure that every you know all the plumbing is working appropriately. Got it. Um, and then I think, you know, uh, going to someone who is uh, an expert in the area or to their agency if they're getting services from, you know, a local agency and, and talking about this with that, that, you know, certified behavior analyst. So you were talking about the, uh, the medical workup and, like okay. you said, make sure the plumbing, everything is, is – is healthy and right on. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something just their pediatrician can do for them, or is there a specialist they would need to go see? The, they would ha- usually should go through the pediatrician, and then the pediatrician okay. would refer out. But one of the okay. things I should sort of caution is there are a lot of pediatricians and other doctors who are sort of uneducated in this area, and so when the you know parent goes to them with a concern, they'll say, oh, you know, children will eat when they're hungry, it's nothing to worry about. Um, And this is where I think parents need to be a little bit more persistent, Um, and it may be uh, persistence on their own or with the, you know, uh, help of the uh, behavior analyst, because you don't want someone just dismissing it as it's really not an issue. Um, And I know that uh, firsthand, um, my daughter, when she was younger, had a uh, feeding issue, and the pediatrician kept saying, you know, she'll eat when she's hungry. Yeah. I mean, I, it sounds like if I'm a parent, I think the advice that you're giving, which is a good one, is you got to trust your gut. Uh-huh. You know, that we talk about that a lot of times with the diagnosis. Sometimes parents are told one thing by friends or professionals or doctors or family and, you know, oh, you got to trust your gut if you feel like something's off, you know, see that through. But it sounds like in this case, if not, maybe probably a bunch of others, if if you really feel like something is an area of concern and intervention is needed, you got to trust your gut and do what's best for your kid. Yeah. If you know that you are, uh, you only can get your kid to eat by making one particular meal, there's an issue that needs to be addressed. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We, um, you know, you talked about behavior analysts, and obviously, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of, you know, behavior analytic interventions here. Um, 
but at the same time, you know, how, how do I know? Like, have you experienced, um, like good questions that a family or a parent can ask of a behavior analyst to almost like interview them to make sure this is a good, a good fit. Um, uh-huh. Because like we said, some behavior analysts have more experience in this than others, or some agencies have more experience than others. I would definitely ask them what their direct experience has been mm-hmm. um, as well, and not just experience, but what their direct education has been on the matter as well. So, you know, was this something that was covered when they were um, getting their course content mm-hmm. uh, in behavior analysis, or was it? Is it they are, are they self-educated, meaning that they've gone to the journals and read the articles related to this? So, I think it's kind of twofold. I would make sure that they have experience in in doing these interventions and working with these kids. And as well as the educational piece, I think is extremely important. So are there, this is more my own curiosity than anything else, but are there a lot of programs um, or ABA programs across the country that are focusing in on feeding or is that more of a minority? It's a minority. There are very few programs Mm -hmm. um, that focus in on it exclusively. They are out there, but there are very few. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not saying that, you know, a behavior analyst has to have a formal education in the area. Sure. Um, but definitely seeking out education in the mm-hmm. area and, you know, going to, there's, for example, there's a special interest group uh, that is uh, associated with the Association for Behavior Analysis International. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if you're really serious about working with this population, you should probably be part of that special interest group. You know, mm-hmm. got it. Yeah, that makes. I actually wasn't even aware of that interest group, so mm-hmm. that's that's really good to know for for folks yeah, out there who are listening. About a couple years ago. Awesome. And so, I'm assuming any any BCBA analysts out there who are interested in learning more could go to the ABAI website and, and get more info there. Yes, definitely. Oh, cool. Um. With the, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the positives. We've talked a lot about the interventions, and I think we've started to talk about some of these these pitfalls. But are there are there common mistakes that parents and professionals kind of step into when trying to implement a feeding program? I think the biggest mistake, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, is starting a treatment and then uh, giving up or um, stop stopping implementing the treatment because it really sort of solidifies uh, the problem for the kid and the kid realizes, oh, if I just up the ante, then I don't have to eat the non-preferred food. So I think it's really, really important that we avoid that mistake. So don't start an intervention unless you're really, really, really invested and committed to following the intervention through. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that I see that's that's made. Um with respect to parents uh, and professionals implementing. The other thing I think is not understanding um, the reason why the kid is engaging in food selectivity. Um, you know, we tend to assume that the, the child is just engaging in the behavior because uh, the food is somehow aversive to them. But mm-hmm. there can be other 
reasons why the, the child's engaging in the behavior. Maybe he gets a lot of attention from grandma when, you know, mm-hmm. he starts engaging in this behavior. So I think the other big mistake is just assuming it's one reason and, and not addressing other potential reasons. I love how you combined another one of your expertise into that answer and, and not making sure we don't forget that there there's more than one function that could be at play potentially and that, you know, going back to our functional assessment and making sure we understand what's going on. I think mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're up to another break. So we're going to take one more break and come back with uh, a couple more questions for Dr. Wallace uh, before we uh, end our show for the day. So we'll come back and uh, hear, see you all real soon. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we are committed to supporting families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, creating futures for individuals with autism. Visit AutismTherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, We are joined today by Dr. Michelle Wallace and been having a great conversation about feeding and food selectivity. Um, We were, right before the break, talking about some of the some of the common mistakes and some of the common challenges. Um, and, you know, to go in a slightly different direction, actually during one of our breaks, Michelle, I was, you know, we were talking about earlier about how there, this is something that maybe is a little bit less understood by parents or uh, less identified. And, and, you know, we were just talking about how there's uh, a little bit less programs um, academically or, or, you know, graduate level focused on this within the ABA realm. Um, I was curious, you know, I know you mentioned research was something that really motivated you in reading some of the early research. Is there less research on this in relation to, um, to the other research done across the ABA kind of scope or, or spectrum or, and does that contribute to some of these reasons why we see kind of less uh, discussion about this? There definitely is, you know, the number of publications related to feeding is definitely lower than other uh, areas. But across the, the, the years, you really, I, I have seen a big increase in the number of publications that, um, on feeding disorders. So, and, you know, it's mainly in large part due to a lot of, um, you know, 
great behavior analysts getting out there and doing this work and publishing it. That's great. And are there are there really good resources or information um, for either families or behavior analysts who are interested to get more informed and more educated on these techniques, these procedures? Um, where where should they turn? I definitely think for a professional, turning to the special interest group is a really good idea. Um, they have a lot of um, projects that they're working on, trying to find out what best practice is with respect to treating, assessing and treating feeding issues. So mm-hmm. for a professional, I would say that that's probably a really good place to start. Um, for a parent, gosh, I wish I knew of a really uh, good source for a parent to go to. Um, I think it's one of those areas that hasn't really caught up yet. Mm. Um, you know, it's and it's one of the things I think it's really hard for a parent to get services in this area. Um, so, you know, if you, I, I know in, in the past, you know, I've gotten phone calls and the parents like, you know, I have nowhere to turn to. I have nowhere to go. Uh, yeah. so the services just really aren't available um, as widespread as some other services. I think that's, you know, just a matter of where we are. And I think eventually uh, services will be more available, mm-hmm. especially, you know, um, programs like this particular program, you know, so that parents are aware that, hey, my kid only eats, you know, broccoli. I mean, my, I wish my kid only ate broccoli. Yeah, right. <laughs> my, my kid only eats chicken nuggets. I, I shouldn't just accept that as that's what it is. I can actually get help with that, you know, and I think when more parents realize that and and really push the professional community that this is something that we have to take serious and something that we need to provide services for, I think will help in that. It sounds like it's this is one of those gaps. This is one of those things that you know, go, oddly enough, I, I wasn't planning to, but tying into the talk I went to last night that I spoke about at the top of the show, like this is one of those areas in our community that we have a gap that we can fill in and, you know, this group or other groups can say, hey, this is what families need. Let's talk more about this. Let's mm-hmm. have more of a resource list because um, you're right. Like, I'm, I don't even know if Autism Speaks does too much on feeding. Um, they have a lot of things on transition in the first hundred days, but I'm not sure if they have too many resources dedicated to this. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, another point you brought up, which I feel like I've experienced too, is you're right. Like, I feel like I've heard people maybe be more open to an OT providing some feeding mm-hmm. oral motor type of interventions like you discussed, but especially in this world of insurance, um, that we seem to be entering into as a community and, a, and as a field, I wonder how aware they are of the behavior analytic approaches for um, feeding and food selectivity. Right. And I do know that um, some of the, you know, um, feeding clinics mm-hmm. uh, that are around, and there's very few, um, I know that they do get um, insurance companies to pay for the services but it's not something that is widespread and easily available right. by any means. Yeah. With, with the little bit of time we have left, um, you know, I, I, I know it's, it's limited and these are our resources, um, but I'm, I'm thinking, I feel like I'm, 
constantly thinking about these. Um, I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of um, posts on Facebook from families who are not in you know big urban areas, um, who are in smaller towns, who are a little bit more isolated in terms of geographically speaking. Um, and it sounds like if I hear you correctly, if, if I'm in a smaller town, you know, I may have to embrace the idea of maybe hopping in my car and going to trying to find a clinic um, in a larger metropolitan area to try and get the support and the services. Um, generally speaking, I would say, yes, that's probably what is going to happen. Although <laughs> um, one of my students a long time ago in her dissertation, he actually, um, the point of her dissertation was to work with families in rural areas um, so that um, the behavior analyst didn't have to go out for every session, but mm-hmm. we actually trained the parents to do the assessments and the interventions, and they videotaped and sent us the videos, and we gave them feedback on what they were doing right and what they were doing wrong and things like that. And especially with technology the way it is, with Skype and other um, formats, I think that we're getting into a, an area where we could start providing services to these rural areas. I know mm. that um, Dr. Wacker uh, and his colleagues have started to provide services for behavior problems, both assessment and intervention, from remote locations. So, you know, in rural areas, they'll have a... a a place where the, uh, they have it equipped with cameras and things like that and like that so that they can provide consultation that way. Awesome. Well, Michelle, we're out of time, and I think that's actually a perfect, a perfect ending point because I think it gives us just as much hope of where this is all going and uh, of how some of this support can actually spread across the country and not just to be in very specific locations. Uh-huh. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for a great conversation um, about a topic that we definitely haven't covered but really, really needed to. So thank, thank you so you much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, with, with our last few minutes, I I actually just want to pick up with, with what Dr. Wallace just said, which is it, it didn't even occur to me, but this is a great intervention that could lend itself really well to the technology and um, the resources that that are starting to grow and starting to come together. Um, this is this is a really hard area, and I I'm glad we finally got to cover it. It it surprised me that it's taken us so long to cover it on the show, but I'm glad that we got to, and I'm glad that we got to have an amazing guest who who really knows her stuff and has so much just experience, both professionally and personally, in this area, and really got to look at it from a few different points of view because I think Michelle does a great job of doing that, hearing what the parents have to say as well as understanding where the professionals are coming from in terms of uh, her interventions and her the advice she gives uh, to young professionals out there. Um, a couple of closing thoughts for everyone is keep, keep the dialogue coming, keep the discussions going. If, you know, we talked about some areas that are, missing uh, in terms of focus. And so if anyone out there is feeling the same way, you know, these are some some great areas for us to all get involved in and to bring our community together to start this dialogue, not just with insurance companies to educate them that funding is out there, not just with professionals to get us BCBAs more educated, more informed, to provide more services of this kind um, by qualified people across the country, 
but to just make sure that we all know that this is okay. Um, I can't emphasize enough how the word of mouth can really spread. And, and as Michelle and I were talking about understanding that, hey, this is off and, and it's okay to trust my gut. And I should uh, make this an emphasis and, and not just sweep this under the rug, which is easy to do and, and, and can be very challenging. Um, so I really encourage everyone to get out there and, like I said, keep this conversation going. Um, I welcome anyone to, to post their thoughts on our Facebook page. Um, we're always wanting to keep that dialogue go- going. Um, I will try my best to actually have a couple of blogs up in the, in the coming weeks to keep this discussion going too because I think the feeding issues is something that affects all of our kids. Um, it's something that I know I talk to a lot of families who have newly diagnosed children about, um, but it's there's older kids too who are still affected by this. Um, so please post your thoughts. Let us know. If you have comments, questions, uh, please share them at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Uh, we're going to be back next week with another show on another topic um, so that we can continue to provide the resources. And as I said at the top of the show, please, please, please get out there and vote. Um, you know, continue uh, messaging the needs of our community to the politicians and to our governments out there to make sure that they know what our kids are looking for and uh, what you yourself are looking for. Until next week, hope you guys have a great week. Look forward to talking to you next week and take care. We'll see you later. We hope you've had some questions about autism answered this week. Autism Spectrum Radio can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Please join us for another edition next week.